Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Welcome, Michael, to our episode of Reflections, which looks back upon our series on women and technology. Thank you for having me again, Terry. So today we're going to be looking back at episode 57 with Nicole Lazara on gender and women in technology, episode 58 with LeBaron Myers on Not Me as a Mobile Solution to Workplace Misconduct, and episode 59, a Survivor Stories series episode with Ashley on the dangers of technology and her experience of cyber stalking and surveillance. So let's start with 57 with Nicole Lazara. You're a gamer. This particular episode was of particular interest to me because I am a gamer. Growing up during the 90s, it wasn't just me who was interested in video games and potentially maybe one day becoming a person like her involved in the gaming industry to be part of that movement. It's something that has seen a lot of development recently uh, with a lot of changes. So even her discussing some of the things that have changed throughout the times that when she was growing up until now, it's something that I feel like I lived it. So I loved every minute of this episode. Were any of the games that she referenced that her company had built and developed, were any of them familiar to you already? Um, no, honestly, <laughs> but I, I looked them up afterward and, and they, they are. Okay, so that's interesting too, because obviously the episode was about gender and women in technology and the fact that she is a female founder of a tech firm. She's a female developer, one of the pioneers in her industry and yet the products that she built were not accessible to you as a male gamer so it when it comes to male gaming it's kind of like saying oh i like art well people have a, a certain affinity to certain types of art and because art is so varied right when it comes to movies movies are so varied also but when it comes to video games there are different i guess different sectors of video games, different genres and different different types of video games that may appeal to a certain demographic and maybe not others, right? So for the most part growing up, I, I stuck to Nintendo games, which aren't, uh, I wasn't into the, like the very, very popular games that were out there. Uh, she mentioned, for example, God of War. I happened to play those video games at the time, but never really owning the system growing up. So it, it really, it really, it's really hard to be involved in every single kind of video game. So just every, every single gamer is not necessarily going to play all the different types of video games. For example, I'm still a gamer, but I don't play the most popular games like Fortnite and I don't know, Minecraft, what kids play these days, I'm not sure. So it really, it's something that, you know, I, I may not be aware of every single game. And I, I just, I happen to not be aware of hers. Well, you know, that speaks to what we were talking earlier before this conversation 
about stepping outside one's comfort zone and how do you expose yourself to other voices, other potentially marginalized voices. So for example, you know, there are these genres, you talked about media in film called rom-coms, right? Romantic comedies in literature, chick lit, female literature. And they're stereotypically genres that don't really cross over to male audiences. And yet, why not? Because women's lives shouldn't just be important to women. They should be important to all of us. Absolutely. But let, let, me, let me say this, though. Um, back in the 90s, um, when I was growing up with video games, uh, things were a little bit different. Right now, the indie games have blown up and, and now a, a place for women in video games is more accessible than it was back then. Video games were just marketed towards boys, not towards women back in the 90s. Again, because the demographic has changed, a lot of that has changed. But the games that were for women were like Barbie. And boys weren't, didn't really have access to, to, to that kind of game because it was just more marketed toward girls and the games weren't as good. I'm assuming it was male people who made these games and they were marketing it towards what they thought that women or, or little girls would like because they were little by little expanding the market to a female audience. Now, or, or instead of what they would like rather, but because I don't know that they're actually going out there and doing market research to assess what girls like. But, but maybe they were creating and marketing games to what they think girls should like and should aspire to. So reinforcing a lot of the gender stereotypes. Right. Like whatever stereotype Barbie was reinforcing, that's what. Yeah. Right. And beauty. So yeah, that's, that's something that was reinforced, again, towards girls. And at the time, it was mostly other kinds of games that boys were marketed to. Were you surprised by Nicole's career trajectory, knowing that she was a gamer so early on at the infancy of the industry and all the games that she played that appealed to her, and then later on, you know, how she built her career? Right, and how she became independent and was able to go out on her own. That's admirable for anybody to do, and especially for her. She did mention that, uh, of course, she was a victim of discrimination, just like many other women in that field. And it seems that statistically, any job where there are more men than there are women, women, there's just more sexual harassment or more harassment in general. So it must have been more difficult, I'm assuming, for her than the, her male counterparts. But she seemed to be very talented and she was able to... Uh, make it on her own. So, And one of the things that she also mentioned was that there are a lot of people like her. There are other women who are developers, not as much as men at this point or before, but there, there are others. So yes, that was surprising and I commend her for that. Another thing that has uh, come up in the news lately is the connection between video games and gun violence. Uh, so in, a few weeks ago, there were several mass shootings, and there's always this rhetoric that this um, GOP conservative playbook that is there to reinforce either mental health as the cause of gun violence or video games, which are symptoms, in my opinion, rather than the causes. Rather than being the cause of gun violence, which is video games and mental illness, they're actually symptoms of a larger issue, which is the way in which masculinity is constructed and violence 
is normalized and validated through means such as video games. So one example that I thought of that's come up a lot in the past few weeks is this statistic between video game revenue and violent gun deaths. So the U.S. has the highest rate of violent gun deaths per 100,000 people. There's this chart in 2017. And Japan has the highest rate of video game revenue per person. Mm-hmm. for 2019 and yet they hardly have any violent gun deaths so for them to be you know anybody who's reinforcing the the rhetoric of video games causes gun deaths isn't looking at the research or the statistics i think it's disingenuous because i think it's pretty obvious i mean i that statistic when you're comparing japan to the united states it is something that most people even the people who say that know this so i do think that they are targeting, I, I don't know why they're targeting specifically video games. I'm sure that before, I, I mean, one of the reasoning uh, that they're probably using is, well, video games have developed at the same time that there was an increase in, in these gun deaths. So therefore, it must be video games that cause that cause it, which I mean, there's many thing, other things that have developed at the same time. And again, there are all sorts of uh, violent media out there too, including movies, there's books. There's, there's, it, it, we just live in a culture of this violence. And it seems like that's been scapegoated, which really don't know why they, they would say that, why people actually fall for it and, and support that. And the same thing goes for mental illness. Like, you know, women are just as likely to have mental illness and experience mental illness, but most of most of the people who are engaging in mass shootings, those mass shooters are mainly men. And so why is it that women who have mental illness aren't expressing their mental illness through violence and mass shootings? Absolutely. That's, that's another thing that people should be paying attention to. That's not to say that video games don't have an effect on a person's behavior. I'm, I'm sure they do. But just like violent media, is also uh, violent movies and things like that. They also have an effect on, on violence, but I wouldn't say that that's the direct cause. The the thing that links all of these mass shootings together that's similar is that most of them are committed by men. And even if that's not true, most all of them have been committed by guns. Like guns is the factor that's, that's, that's true in all of them. Right, so access to guns is definitely one contributor to gun violence, but also another variable that links mass shootings more than anything else is a history of misogyny, sexism, or domestic violence amongst the mass shooters. And that's something that um, many of us who work in gender justice and in the movement to end gender-based violence already know. And I constantly, as you know from following my social media, I constantly use the hashtag connect the dots to try to draw attention to these variables, which is history of domestic violence, misogyny, or sexism, and mass shootings. And as you know, when we talked with Rachel Louise Snyder about her book, No Visible Bruises, she said that half of mass shootings are actually domestic violence incidents that are not acknowledged by the media and go unreported as such. Mm, I remember that episode and yeah that makes sense yes uh, toxic masculinity is a huge contributor to this and um that's something that should be addressed and not many people in the media are are mentioning it and it's awful i was going to also mention that she said that there are different kinds of video games and that 
I, she feels like things are getting better. Um, when it comes to video games, back in the day, she mentioned God of War, right? And she talked about how in the past, uh, God of War 1 and 2 were very violent, like Rambo-ish kind of, where there's this one guy who's violently killing hordes and hordes of, of people and monsters and everything, and it's just this, this masculinity just out there. And it's, it's very over the top. But now, I, I believe the most recent God of War, it's about the, his relationship with his son or his son figure. That's one of the things that she's, she's mentioning, that... The more video game people involved in video games, the more different kinds of video games that exist, and the more women are that are involved, uh, I think that brings more to the table. So video games don't necessarily have to be about violence, although, I, you know, statistically there are more games about competition and, and violence and, and fighting than any other type of game. Which is why representation matters and is a good reason for us to promote, as does Nicole in her advocacy work, promote more girls who code and girls and women in technology so that their perspective and their lens towards what is fun can be included in the conversation. And one of the things that I mentioned to Nicole was how, as a parent, I would love to be able to see fewer games that are about winning and more games that are cooperative in nature. Right. She, there are games that do do that already even in the 90s there was one of the games that she mentioned was the sims and she said it was sort of like a dollhouse and it is it's basically you you take control of a family or, or whoever you create and then you build a house around it and you just see their lives go on and and you you just help them so it's not really about there's no end game to that it's just like you you just help these families grow and it's, again it's like a little dollhouse it's it's a game that even People who don't necessarily play games often, like my sister, would play a lot. It's not a group game. It's more of a, like a dollhouse. Like you're playing with little dolls. Right. So that, that's not a game where you can, you can help develop cooperation skills, though. Well, one then I would then the other one that I uh, that she mentioned also. There's two. Oh, actually, two that she may not have uh, put too much. But Cooking Mama, Cooking Mama is about cooperating with another player in order to create plates and serve the customers. And you're supposed to work together quickly, cooperatively, in order to do more and more. So, so that's that's a cooperative. Is that game. a game that mainly girls and women play, or I was, do, do guys play that as well? Well, I was introduced. I play it. I play it. But I was introduced to it by one of my female students. So, I mean, I, I don't know the statistics behind yeah, it. I mean, I'm looking for games that are cross-gender. So then this is the last one that I'll bring up. Minecraft, which is actually one of the most popular games in the world right now. Minecraft is like building Legos. And it is cooperative. The only thing that kind of detracts from it is that you can build things like swords and fight monsters together but again so so yeah i understand but you don't necessarily the game is so open world and and sort of like let's build like people have used this game to build computers like that's how complex this game is where you don't necessarily have to focus on the combat part but they do have like a story mode that's cooperative and everything. But again, that aside, you can actually build uh, gigantic structures. It's like Legos, but virtual. And it, it is one of the most popular games right. in the world right now. Those are, those are things I definitely have to check out. Um, I do have a wish for listeners who are in gaming, who are developers, though, to create more 
games that are educational in nature, that are cooperative for younger age kids, because there aren't enough right now that are nonviolent, that actually help them learn, and not just learn something academic, but learn something that can help them develop social emotional skills, self-regulation, other kinds of skills that we know that children need more of and can help them better work together in teams and cooperate, as I said, not just cooperate as in get along, but cooperate as in problem solve together. And I believe that uh, hopefully that, that, that issue will be addressed as, as we move forward. There are a lot of indie independent companies that are creating their own different new kinds of games. And uh, there, there, there is a market out there for this. And a lot of people, hopefully, um, if we include more women and more diversity in who we support with our dollar, I, I, I do believe that that would change. And so hopefully the culture is changing, um, even though we do see a lot of things that are still very, very wrong. Um, like in the Patriot Act that the Netflix series with uh, Hassan Minaj and how he exposes this horrible culture in gaming and that it, it is a problem that hopefully with exposure, it'll be uh, addressed. You're talking about the employment culture and labor practices where developers work really long hours without additional compensation. Right at and the, high risk of losing their jobs. So when games are released, there could be a mass layoff with no, no cushion at all. Right. Right. And he also mentioned how he mentioned the bro culture, where just these men that like sort of exclude women out of developing games and such. So it's multiple problems that he, he talks about. But yes, it's something that hopefully with more exposure, you'll be able to, it'll be able to be addressed. But even now, there are things in gaming culture that are very, very, I, I believe, counterproductive to that. You, you mentioned Gamergate, right, in this conversation. And this type of culture still exists on the internet right now, like the, where there's this very, like, incel kind of dominated conversation towards um, women who are harassed constantly. And when they speak out about it, they're silenced and they're harassed. Um, I was, I know that she wasn't the first, but Anita Sarkeesian is the one that I was uh, exposed to more. Um, and now it was, it was, that was the victim of the, of Gamergate. That one, I, one of the many victims. One of the many, yeah. Yeah, but that was the first victim uh, that I found out about. And even till this day, there are posts on, on Reddit, on Imager, and on other places still bashing these women. Yeah, so what can we do about that? I mean, we have to educate people like with podcasts like this, but speak out. I would say speak out. If there is a post on the internet, there are people who do see this, who do see the abuses, who and the people that are speaking, who, who are putting out this um, negative rhetoric... Um, may not necessarily be informed. They they just go. It's just this culture, right? So they just they're like, oh, this this woman is just complaining. She she she's just uh, causing problems, or she's. A lot of the times, it's it's people who feel threatened. They they think that they're they're going after their video games and they're 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 trying to take away um, their identity. And and I think they this fear causes this lashing out, right? Well, it's not just identity. It's also I feel like there's 
this bro culture, like you said, you know, the incel culture in particular, where you get to hide behind the screen and not explore or develop the other aspects of your emotional life. And that part of their identity, like you were saying, is threatened, but it's also their ability to hide is being threatened because then it exposes them to or puts them in a position where if other people enter that space, they have to be more authentic. They have to interact with other people that they may not have the skills to interact with. And so that makes them defensive potentially. Right. And I think another reason why they feel defensive is because she speaks truth right she 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 exposes some of these like sexist tropes for example a couple of well i'm talking specifically about anita sarkisian who um talks about how the image of women are, are exploited in video games and but let's say here's the thing if you don't agree with it why why are people still so threatened let's say you think that that person is completely wrong about what they're saying why is there this hate why is there this threat that you feel like you have to harass her. And there's a lot of people who are this incel culture that's just harassing them, harassing these women. And I think it's an essential thing where they realize that this is something that's wrong and they feel that if that she's trying to take it away, that she's trying to um, censor them. And that's why I say that their identity is, is being threatened. In some ways, that sounds like the excuse or explanation that's given by men in defending their attacks on feminism. That feminism isn't really about equality of the genders and sexes, but it's actually about disempowering men. And I think that's a faulty way to look at it. It's only applicable if you think of power as something that is a fixed pie. And if actually you're empowering women to live their full lives the way that we are actually not empowering men under patriarchy, but uh, but men think that they are. Everybody can have more powerful lives and richer lives. And so the pie can grow. And so that's the fallacy that we think that it's a zero-sum game when in fact it's not. When in, everybody is being restrained under the current system of how gender influences and shapes our behaviors and attitudes. And instead, we are, instead of being circumscribed um, and restrained by these boxes, we're actually unable to live our full lives and be our full selves. And so, as you were saying, men might feel threatened that they're going to be less powerful or have to give up something but rather they're not giving up they're actually gaining and they just we just have to communicate better what it is that they have to gain right although i would add to that that um when a lot of men have power they use it to dominate and suppress others and so maybe they're afraid that if someone else has power that they will be dominated and suppressed and I think it's it's just it's it's a wrong way of thinking, but I, I I feel like that's another reason why existentially they feel threatened. Which is why we have to teach. Getting back to what we said in our previous episode of reflections, why we have to teach how children how to use power responsibly and for good, 
to uplift other people rather than to keep them down. Right. Instead of dominating, they're using it to make the world better. It, it, it's like make instead of trying, trying having women become more like men. It's more like it, it should be where you're having men become more like women or the attributes that we assign to women like nurturing and things like that um that's those are the the qualities that should be uplifted and those are not and those are just socially constructed as being gendered right. male or female when in fact they're just human qualities right they're yeah and everybody has them and um we should promote those qualities so moving on to our next episode 58 with LeBaron Myers. She works for a company called Not Me, which develops a mobile solution to help address workplace misconduct, so harassment and discrimination. And how it works is you download the app, you can anonymously fill out a report either as a target of discrimination or harassment, or if you're an ally or a witness to it, And the company then takes a look at the data, connects with you, gets in touch with then the employer, follows up with the employer to see if there's anything done. And if not, they said that they would actually follow up with oversight authorities, regulatory authorities around equal protection of protected classes. So what are your thoughts about that technology? I believe it's 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 actually a very positive thing. It's it's the more this is available to everybody, the more likely we're able to address this issue because it's a very important issue to address. Recently, I was uh, involved in taking part of my company's sexual harassment training, and uh, there are things that the New York um, is trying to address, including things like domestic violence in the training and and making people aware of this because. Um, it's it's well it's something that again the new york has been active in promoting and uh a part of this is probably because of the me too movement this changing culture where it, we found that it's important to address these issues um interesting enough i found out that one of the things that i found out there is that um after training in in uh, harassment reports often increase um and and so hopefully that shows that uh, more people are being exposed and th- that, uh, that people are feeling more comfortable to speak out. Well, not just more comfortable, but also they're potentially being introduced to the concept that the behaviors that they've experienced are illegal. And so they're learning, they're getting increased awareness that what they're experiencing has some formal route legally or otherwise to accountability right so um but again just like before with uh the discussion uh with nicole's um with with nicole uh we do see that there are people uh even in my training who are resistant to this and feel like maybe the increase in reports could possibly be due to false accusations and we know from previous episodes that false reports are actually very low and it's a myth to think that people would that false reports dominate the totality of reports right and i believe in general people aren't educated about that these 
small polls with uh, with our, our students and even with our students, there's a lot of people who still feel that false reporting is a weapon that women use against men. While we, we talk about also the fact that it's no different than any other crime. So while false reporting does exist, it doesn't exist more than any other crime. So if somebody steals my car, there are certain people that lie about my car getting stolen for maybe insurance purposes or whatever it is, but they are not this is not a, an issue that we should be looking at. In fact, by bringing that up, it, I believe it does hinder the conversation or it, it just stops the conversation where it should keep on going. So the people who were in your training, Michael, when they brought up their concerns around false reporting, how did the instructor for the sexual harassment class deal with it? Did they acknowledge their concern and then present facts to disabuse them of it, or did they just ignore it and not use it as a teaching opportunity for the whole class? What happened? What happened in my particular training was that he, I feel like he ignored it because his response was, well, I understand your concern, but this is what the law is. This is what the law says, and we have to follow what the law says, which means that I was actually one of the people that were, that, that kind of tried to speak out about it, and it seemed like it wasn't addressed. So that's a shame because that person, that trainer made the legality of it, the mandatory nature of complying with the law, a higher priority than explaining the reason behind the law. Because mm-hmm. the law exists in order to protect against certain sets of behaviors. And if those certain sets of behaviors weren't the norm, weren't a problem, then a law wouldn't be put into place. Right. And maybe he's not as educated in that particular, um, this particular subject, because, you know, trainers are, are, are trainers. They're, they're, it's, it's their job. They, they know the material and they, and they give and they present it how they feel. And, they, and no matter what you're doing, a presenter is going to have some sort of bias with their experience. So I'm not going to blame the trainer 100% for that, for him not being informed. I I think it's, it's, although he should be informed, I I see the problem. If something's been implemented as a law, then that means there's legitimate reason for it to be the law. (laughs) And here's the thing, and, and again, it just makes more sense for companies to give these trainings so people are aware. Our policy for harassment is it's uh, there's less room forever than the law itself because they will fire a person before it gets to the point where they're going to have a lawsuit because my company obviously doesn't want to get sued. So policies are put in place in order to address the issue before it becomes an issue or before it becomes a legal issue, right? So I believe the standard is, for example, no nothing that is not professional talk like you, you're not allowed to to speak with anybody in a in a way that's not professional unless there is a and if you do then you take part into something called risky behavior which is legal you're taking legal risk in order to to communicate so that's that, that that's basically what they're trying to do to cover themselves in a way you're saying that that your company potentially many companies their rationale behind these workshops, besides the fact that they're mandatory and legally required, 
is really as a defensive move to reduce liability, not necessarily to build a culture of safety and respect. Which is why, why I say, why, why probably the instructor said what he said. And that's unfortunate. So what do you think we can do to help encourage companies to build cultures of respect and safety? Well, I as a manager would make sure that my staff is informed of the reasoning behind, behind these laws. I would, I, I would hope that there is some way that we could have trainings that would address these issues and the reasoning behind these issues. Or maybe, I'm really not sure how to answer that question in a policy kind of way. But I, again, I go back to education. The more people are educated, the more likely it is that the, we're able to change the culture. What's been your experience with regard to developing this kind of awareness with your own teams and staff? While there are situations, I, I'm taking steps in order to uh, encourage the staff to be able to teach some of these things, because right now I'm the, I'm the only person who, who teaches sexual harassment, who talks about this culture. And so I'm developing like these workshops for the staff to give these talks and, and, and to be able to to, to address this with the students. And hopefully by me promoting this podcast will hopefully inform both my students and my staff about these issues. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great step. If people don't feel personally invested in using their voice to promote equality and justice, and by equality and justice, I mean encouraging different voices, often silenced or even marginalized voices from different groups to speak, to give their opinions, to participate in decision-making, then we're not really going to be changing anything. And we're going to be making the same decisions that have gotten us to where we are right now and all the problems that we've inherited from generations Mm -hmm. for us. Right. But um, I'm glad that an app like this is being developed in order to, to give the voice to the people who need it. One of the interesting features that this uh, app had was um, the fact that you can write or journal incidents of harassment and not necessarily submit it, but when you're ready to submit it, you can then submit it and all of the the things that you journaled would be submitted and addressed, hopefully by that company, whichever company is addressing it, right? Because I think the company has to be registered with, with not me. Hopefully people will use the not me application to journal and expose the incidents of harassment. And I also just want to say harassment and discrimination, which they put under the category of misconduct, but misconduct is a very sort of soft whitewashing of discrimination, which is legally, which is illegal. Mm-hmm. And harassment is a higher burden to prove. Um, so if we use the term discrimination, it's actually probably more common and easy, there's a lower burden of proof and, and therefore hopefully easier to hold accountable. Absolutely. I do want to add that in my conversation with LeBaron, there was a point at which she ended our discussion around creating, quote unquote, I don't remember the phrase, but I'll just say, quote unquote, spaces for male advocates to be able to speak. And I don't remember the exact wording, but it sounded like giving space to them. And I thought about it after our conversation, and it reminds me a lot of this post that I've seen that's gone somewhat viral around the internet, especially on Instagram, where 
the quote says, men who want to be feminists don't need to be given space. They need to take their space and make it feminist. And so men already occupy space because of their privilege. And if we're trying to call attention to the patterns of behavior in the workplace in this case, where predominantly there are abuses of power that are committed mainly by one gender, then it is something that we need to call attention to. And if calling attention to it means creating a feminist space where there's safety to speak out and a culture that promotes equality between the sexes, where this form of harassment or discrimination is not tolerated, then we need men who have access to that privilege and power to not ask for space, so to speak, because they already occupy it. And asking for space in a way denies the fact that they already have that space. Right. So I would suggest that men who want to be advocates or allies to help address and eliminate workplace misconduct, harassment, and discrimination, that they speak out and help create that space where when other people are making jokes about women or behaving in a way that doesn't create a healthy and safe work environment, that they're not normalizing it by being silent because silence is itself a form of enablement. Absolutely. And a lot, I believe a lot of people do remain silent, especially men, because they don't feel like it affects them while it in fact does. Or if, if they are silent, it's not just because it doesn't affect them, but they're unwilling to risk their privilege and status to go against the people who are making those comments. Right. Which a lot of times I, you, you would find more support than you think, because a lot of people would agree that comments like that or, or the, these behaviors do create an environment that's sometimes unsafe and sometimes just uncomfortable and unconducive to uh, work. So let's take a look at another side of technology. The first two episodes that we discussed, there were positive aspects. Obviously for Nicole, it was building community and having fun and being playful and learning. And of course, being able to build a business around something that she enjoys. But this next episode, which is a survivor story with a survivor who calls herself Ashley under the pseudonym Ashley, talks about the dangers of technology and the flip side. And for her, she as a domestic abuse, coercive control victim and survivor experienced and possibly continues to experience cyber stalking and surveillance by her abuser. So I want to just start out and frame the conversation that I had with Ashley. First of all, she shared with me the transcripts of the orders of protection hearings that she had. And so it was from that that we started our conversation. I have since, as of a few days ago, gotten an update from her with regard to how different members of the court have viewed those transcripts. And apparently there are some court-appointed psychologists who've looked at those transcripts subsequent to our conversation and agree with the judge who denied her the order of protection. 
and agreed that it should have been denied because number one, she didn't erase the data and keep all the evidence, which is what anyone who has evidence who might want to use it in other in other venues. Because then it would be like it never happened. Or also if she wants to use it in a criminal case or a civil case later, right? Absolutely. That's something she needs to preserve. Right, she needs that. And so that was the main excuse for them not believing that she deserved the order of protection. Again, that's another case where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they are unaware of the way domestic violence works. They are unaware of abuser tactics. Because the only other explanation is that these people are willingly uh, wanting to put the woman down for some reason and, and making sure that, she, that her abuse continues. So I wouldn't like to think that. I really hope that that's not the case. But what she went through is really, really difficult. She had this, I can't imagine living in a, in a state of constant fear where you're constantly being monitored. This cyber stalking, this man was monitoring her from both her, his, his home and his work. He apparently, he apparently knew all the conversations. And I, one of the things that I learned, and I didn't know you could do this, was that you could basically have access to the person's passwords and everything, which means you have access to the entire conversation of whoever you're speaking to. And she must must have been in a state of constant fear. Not only that, well, one of the things that she mentioned was that they were able to track the IP address, which, I, I mean, it's, it's great that she mentioned it, but it, it's also a little dangerous, right? Because you have the fact that if, if an abuser knows that, then they just use a VPN and and avoid getting caught that way. Um, so, but apparently the abuser was still tracking even afterwards, and and so it was, it's almost like he knew that he was being watched and he was getting away with it, and it was all fine. Just as a follow up, she's no longer being. Does she erase it now or, or? No, no, she hasn't. She's not using it. When that happened, she didn't, as she said in the interview, she didn't use any of those devices again. So she had to get all new devices and all new usernames and passwords. I see. So that meant that, I think she also mentioned in the episode, it meant that she didn't have access to her photos anymore or any of her data that she had accessed through those previous usernames and passwords and accounts. And by creating new ones, if she imported them to a new phone, for example, it would still import the software. Right. So she so had to new, get everything new... completely new. Right. And that makes sense. That's, that's the only way. So the argument against her is that because she kept that information that she wanted to be stalked? I, I, I still don't get the logic. The logic is that she didn't delete the software or the data from the old devices, the laptops and the cell phones. Okay. And so by not deleting it, she therefore must not have thought it was such a big deal. And it somehow made her less credible as in her accusation, in her claim. Because if she was really, it's almost like if you were, you were being like physically stalked, Mm -hmm. why are you walking along the same route? Right, that's 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 the that's it's the almost the same thing, but that's not a great analogy, I would have to say. But and so it's almost like I actually can't think of a a good analogy, but 
Well, either again, you yeah, because technology just adds another layer to this, which it's something that you don't normally don't normally have. I'll give the the example of someone that's very close to me, who is being harassed by an ex boyfriend, and in order for her to have evidence to show the well, this is not a real analogy. It's it's actually the same thing. In order for her to show that he's harassing her, she has to unblock him and receive these messages and then be able to show the police evidence but that's kind of like saying well you can't have that evidence you can't you can't expose that evidence you you should have deleted it because if you say this makes you uncomfortable then you should block the person right but if you're blocking the person you're allowing other people uh, other ways another argument is that they would probably find other alternate ways which may be potentially more dangerous I mean, I think the point is that it, because she didn't destroy the evidence of the crime, therefore she wasn't concerned about the crime. And in fact, one can just look at it as she didn't destroy the evidence because she plans on using the evidence in different forms, like I said, to hold this abuser accountable. It may not be family court. It could be later civil court or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be the court of public opinion. You know, maybe she wants to put these transcripts online publicly um, and just take out her her name and identifying information potentially. But let me just add another thing that she told me in the email that she sent, which is that the custody evaluators, not only did they agree with the judge in denying the order of protection because she didn't destroy the evidence, they also told this protective mother that even though they acknowledged that the man was abusive to her and the kids, but she failed to shield the kids from the abuse. And so they're recommending that the kids stay with him because they behave better with him, which is a typical response from people who, you know, work in this field and are quote unquote PAS believers, parental alienation syndrome believers. They're basically endorsing fake news and they're part of this cottage industry of people who just aren't putting children and survivors safety first. They're engaging essentially in victim blaming and if you complain about the abuse, if you try to, if the abuse doesn't go away and your abuser isn't being held accountable, you're seeing as not being forgiving and not letting go and not moving on and potentially exposing your children to the abuse. And so all of these things are just twisted ways of not holding the abuser accountable and victim blaming. And it's, it's, it's again, I go back to misinformation and, and the belief that, because I, I there, even on the internet, I see that there's this belief that in uh, custody hearings that the woman is, is given priority, that the woman always gets what she wants. And that's, that's another myth that's, that's not true. So I believe it's a counter to that and to this just false myth. Yeah, and we have to and we have to continue to call attention to these myths because even though I spend about 10 episodes across all of the podcasts dealing with family court, divorce and custody and interviewing experts who are debunking these myths, people might come into the podcast not having been exposed to those other episodes and we have to really point them out to the new listeners who are learning about this podcast from this point and One of the things that I also want to share, Michael, is that just today, an interview that I did with a podcast about PAS, about parental alienation syndrome and how it's fake news, just got launched. And it's a podcast called I Can't Believe It's Not News. 
We talk at length about disinformation, which is a deliberate way in which false information is spread and perpetuated, which is essentially what PAS is. And I talk about in particular how PAS is used by abusers as a form of disinformation tactic to discount and discredit the claims of abuse by survivors and victims and by abusers to weaponize our trauma and our victimization against us. So I hope that people are now becoming more aware of this because it's something that, again, I wasn't exposed to it before this podcast, and I hope that others will listen and and take note. Well, until next time, Michael, thank you again for joining me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.